Welcome to the Crispin Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Crispin. Topics on today's episode include Bank of America's large fine, a discussion between myself and my dad on historical comparisons for the current environment, and what margins we could see for originators moving forward, and the latest CPI inflation data. Today's podcast is brought to you by Simple Nexus, an Encino company and award-winning developer of mortgage technology for today's modern lenders. Simple Nexus makes it easy for lenders and borrowers to manage the mortgage process from anywhere. With a flexible digital loan application and a simplified mobile disclosure process, hundreds of lenders rely on Simple Nexus to deliver world-class home lending services. Learn more at simplenexus.com. I imagine every compliance person at every bank, large and small, are once again reviewing their policies after the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau ordered Bank of America to pay more than $100 million to customers for systematically double-dipping on fees imposed on consumers with insufficient funds in their account, withholding reward bonuses explicitly promised to credit card customers, and misappropriating sensitive personal information to open accounts without customer knowledge or authorization. My dad would sometimes say, you can't tell the players without a scorecard, as in the New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox famously don't have names on their home jerseys. A scorecard of sorts is the 2022 Humda data, with 4,460 institutions reporting, including banks, credit unions, and mortgage companies. The number of reporting institutions increased by 2.63% from 2021. Speaking of my dad, I invited him onto the podcast for a discussion on historical comparisons for the current environment and what margins we could see for originators moving forward. Apologies in advance for some of the audio on my end. I was trying to record it as I was driving down the interstate going from Lincoln, Nebraska back to Colorado yesterday. As you'll be the first to say, there's not much going on out there, but I want to ask historically... This is kind of the doldrums of summer when capital markets folks leave their desks and take vacation and do whatever. Why do they take it now when this is traditionally the the strongest spring, summer home buying season? And in theory, there'd be the most mortgage-backed securities being created and the most need for them to be at their desks. Why why leave when the, the volume is at its peak for the year? Well, it's oftentimes at its peak the the seasonality of interest rates is nearly non-existent interest rates are going to do what they do regardless of whether it's december or june uh you're right about the volume the volume traditionally picks up in a normal refi environment where rates are steady or or even going down a little bit as we know rates have gone up and so refis now account for about 25% of current applications, which may surprise some, saying, gosh, you know, so many, so many borrowers have mortgage rates in the threes and fours. I mean, it's a it's a huge percentage. So why is anybody refinancing? But there is some refinancing going on. But in answer to your question, this summer, obviously volumes are down. The the purchase market has slowed. We haven't seen the pickup that we traditionally get because inventory numbers are so low. So 
I think there's one listing for every three real estate agents out there right now, which, you know, as anybody who drives through their neighborhood can see by a lack of for sale signs, uh, it's really a, you know, it's really pretty slow. And so you have all that going on with the traditional backdrop of, oh, my kids are out of school now and quick, let's go visit my aunt in Tennessee or my cousin in North Carolina or my brother up in Seattle. The So the family, family vacations have, you know, have overcome any kind of more volume. And, and frankly, you know, whether or not you are selling a, a $5 million security to hedge your position or a $50 million security to hedge your position, it's still the same transaction. So in fact, one could argue that the larger shops are actually more automated and have more backup staff than the smaller shops. So I'd say it's, you know, a lot of still pent up summer vacation that's going on out there. And the the same thing is happening with investors like Penny Mac or Amerihome or the wholesalers out there. You know, they just, uh, things, things are slow right now a little bit and not a lot of changes being announced. And so on the investor side, the whole loan investor side, uh, it is pretty slow as well. So that was a question kind of geared towards capital markets. And for those that are on the production side of things out there listening to this, I'm sure they have a much better idea of their companies locked to fund, locked to close than, than you or I do. But once a loan closes, can you walk listeners through how long it takes to ultimately make its way to end investors out there in the process, uh, kind of how it, it moves along the factory chain once it closes? Well, that's a good question. And I think at one extreme, you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which many companies during the crunch period of 2020-2021, which for, fades further into the rearview mirror, they were known to buy loans very quickly. And if you're a mortgage bank, independent mortgage bank with a warehouse line that you know may have been being stretched near its capacity, Getting loans purchased in a hurry is of paramount importance, even if the price suffers a little bit. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac may not have had the best price, but because they would tend to buy loans more rapidly than some of the larger correspondents who are out there, they would oftentimes get the bulk of the business. Right now, at the other end of the scale, the bond program loans that are out there, they take forever. And I use that term in quotes, but you know, two, three, four months to be finally purchased and taken off the warehouse line. And so even though a lot of independent mortgage banks have to have those bond programs, housing finance authority programs in order to satisfy loan officers, which is certainly understandable, uh, they do tie up a warehouse line for considerably more time than you know FHA, VA, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac. So, yeah, you could have with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac back. You know, if things are really functioning, you could have a loan purchased within you know a week or two, at most. Sometimes, you know, three, four, five days. 
with the bond programs, like I said, that might take months. You speak to a lot of executives out there or those in leadership positions in your travels or in your inbox. What are what are companies doing with this downtime to, to best position themselves to either win business now or when things pick back up, be in a position to beat their competitors? I think a lot of companies have been through very similar cycles in terms of the last three years, you know, desperately trying to hire people during those pandemic years and then slowly uh, and being hesitant, but slowly laying off people or rapidly laying off people in an effort to cut overhead as volumes and margins dropped. And we saw a tremendous number of layoffs as 2022 wound up. And now we're halfway through 2023. We haven't seen the layoffs that marked the second half of 2022. But nonetheless, I would say a lot of companies are out there saying, all right, is this the peak of the year? Are we really going to do a trillion eight this year as an industry? We've been treading water, maybe losing a little bit of money here in the last several months. Is this an environment? or a situation that we want to continue, or should we have more layoffs and try to cut more overhead? And so I think a lot of companies right now, at least senior management wise, are taking another look at further cutting overhead. And, you know, they don't want to do it because you really, if things do pick back up, the the natural tendency is to call up somebody that you laid off two months ago and see what they're doing now. And that is much less expensive bringing somebody else, somebody on who used to work for you than a new person. But in many cases that old, you know, the person that you laid off, they've got a family to support and needless to say, have moved on on to another company or another industry entirely. Uh, So nobody wants to be, no company wants to be in a position where they're having to call up people that they laid off and try to get them back again. And so many vendors have provided alternatives to that with their software uh, as a as a fix against you know that accordion style of of personnel management. But right now, I think that, like I said, I think senior management is looking at the current overhead picture and saying, "Well, you know, we're certainly not replacing anybody who leaves, and let's try to hire producers rather than lay ops people off." Or let's let's talk to other firms about merging, or let's hire that branch, let's hire that producing manager, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of more of the same. But I think overall, companies are looking at the second half of 2023, thinking, all right, can we can we survive from a PNL perspective? Is our PNL going to look like it has in the last two to three months? You know, for the rest of the year. What will the owners think of that? And if the owners don't like it, what are we going to do to correct it? I have a good interview with Richie Mays, Nathan Lee next week on converting fixed costs into variable costs and how companies can maintain profitability. You mentioned a three-year cycle, this last three-year cycle being similar for companies, but you've been in the industry since the 80s. So that's five decades, 80s, 90s, aughts, 2010s, into the 2020s. Have you seen a time like this of, of layoffs, what's, what would you compare it to? And, and I guess, how did that play out as 
volume started to pick up again? What 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 does it bring to mind historically for you? Yeah, every time is different. Every every year is a little bit different than some other year in mortgage banking. Uh, for a while there, I like to joke about this. This is a a business with ten year cycles, and we all have eight year memories, and so we tend to go through some of the things again that we've been through before. The big difference this time is that interest rates went down into the high twos and threes. And so the industry and a lot of individuals, including a lot of millions of borrowers out there, got used to that new interest rate environment or that kind of interest rate environment. And now rates obviously have crept up. They're more than double where they were a couple of years ago. And so it is a different environment. We haven't seen that kind of interest rate movement, uh, I think, in in decades and decades. And some companies are out there saying, "Good, you know, we're we're well positioned from an overhead perspective to withstand something like this." Other companies are saying, "Oh my gosh, you know, oh my gosh," and wringing their hands and running around and and panic. Not I won't say panicking, but you know, they're much more nervous than others. So some companies are looking at this as an opportunity to have their lesser competitors leave their marketplace. Others are indeed looking at leaving the marketplace. So it's not as if we are going to see rates plummet anytime in the near future to the point where it makes sense for a lot of people to refinance, at least in my opinion. There's no reason really for rates to go down in the next several months. And so we're looking at an interest rate environment that if you're, if you don't like interest rates, then you better think of something else to do. There's a quick follow-up before I let you go. Then sometime in the next 30 years, when the fed once again, drives up the price of mortgage backed securities and rates ultimately drop, do you think companies will build in even more margin than they had in this last cycle so that rates don't drop precipitously and as a result refinances over the remainder of that cycle won't plummet like we've seen this time or it's just going to be a, a race to the bottom with rates uh whenever it can be i don't think i personally think the fed has been very transparent in terms of its thinking of the future i think that the federal reserve through the f Federal Open Market Committee is, is trying to, uh, you know, create a soft landing for the economy, as they say. And so, the 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 smartest guys and gals in the room are thinking another couple interest rate hikes, but they may do an interest rate hike there in, at the end of July. And remember, they don't have another meeting for a couple months, not until September. So they do have some time to look at the data, see if it's having more of an impact, see if the economy is slowing down, and I'm sure. That'll be a topic in the press all through the remainder of July and August and into early September is all the data and what's the Fed going to do with it. So, you know, maybe they raise rates here later in July, then, you know, they don't do anything in September, in which case, you know, the bond market will do what the bond market's going to do. But I think the Fed has has a lot of resources at its fingertips and a lot, certainly a lot more analytical power than many of the people who are making guesses as to what the Federal Reserve might do. But uh, for right now, I should say after July, after July 26th, I think we'll be, definitely be data driven in terms of what 
the economy does and its impact on the Fed's thinking out in September? That wasn't my question at all. I asked about the over the next 30 years, and you referenced the next three months. It was when MBS prices get driven sky high again and rates drop, do you think companies will build in more margin and keep rates from going so low, knowing it'll knock out refinance demand over the remainder of whatever economic cycle that will be, or it's always going to be a race to the bottom for the lowest rate? No, companies tend to build margin in in any downdraft in interest rates. That's traditionally the that's traditionally the thing. You know, part of it is trying to preserve your current pipeline because if rates do drop and you've got 30-day or 60-day locks and they just locked in yesterday and suddenly rates drop a lot, you tend to pad margins because you don't want the loan officers or account executives calling you right away and saying, hey, remember that Jones loan we locked in on Friday, well, they want to renegotiate. Well, you don't want that kind of call, um, especially if loans aren't moving through the pipeline already. So in a down move, companies do tend to increase their margins. In an up move, they tend to cut margins a little bit, trying to you know keep business coming in the door. If rates do drop, all that we hope for is some kind of gradual drop. If they plummet, which would be a sign of something not so good, namely like a pandemic, which no one wants, then yeah, companies tend to increase their margins to try to keep things more orderly and then reduce margins as they get into the current economic interest rate cycle to make sure that interest rates are going to stay. Maybe next time I have you back on, I can dig into that a little more in terms of companies finding ways to avoid a drop off in refinances like we've seen this time. But sure. Thank you for the time. You're welcome. Interest rates didn't do much yesterday ahead of today's June Consumer Price Index release, especially with no releases of note and no Federal Reserve speakers. Ahead of this morning's CPI release, pricing in Fed funds futures markets implied a 95% chance of a 25 basis points hike at the July FOMC meeting. The overnight rate currently sits at 5 to 5.25%. And despite chatter suggesting that an additional 25 basis points hike beyond this month's hike is likely before year-end, and that rates need to stay elevated for an extended period, pricing in futures markets still favors the 5.25% to 5.5% range as the Fed funds rate at the end of the year. We did learn yesterday that small business optimism in June increased due to higher optimism on the economic outlook, according to the NFIB Small Business Optimism Survey. Inflation and labor quality are the most important problems facing small businesses in June. And while earnings trends and employment are trending lower, the outlook is becoming less dour. The overall outlook has improved, but the reading marks the 18th consecutive month below the historical average and currently sits at levels associated with 2008 to 2013. The number of small businesses raising prices fell to the lowest level since March 2021. While still inflationary, the trend is moving lower. It was also reported that mortgage credit availability increased marginally in June, according to the Mortgage Credit Availability Index report from MBA. Availability remains close to the lowest level since early 2013, as the industry continues to operate at reduced capacity. Lenders are offering fewer loan programs, and we've seen notable exits of large players from certain channels over the course of this year. The Jumbo Index declined for the second straight month as liquidity conditions have tightened for Jumbo lending. 
This morning, we learned that last week's mortgage applications increased 0.9% from one week earlier, according to data from MBA. This week's results include an adjustment for the observance of Independence Day. Applications are more than 30% lower than a year ago, and at the slowest pace since December 2022. That all-important June CPI report has also been released, and it came in up 0.2% month-over-month lower than expected, and up 3% year-over-year. The core rate, excluding food and energy, was also up 0.2% and up 4.8% year-over-year. Expectations were for increases of 0.3% month-over-month and 0.4% month-over-month in the headline and core, resulting in year-over-year readings of 3.2% and 5.1% compared with 4.0% and 5.3% previously. Later today brings a treasury auction of $32 billion of reopened 10-year notes, a heavy slate of Fed presidents speaking, Richmond's Barkin, Minneapolis's Kashkari, Atlanta's Bostitch, and Cleveland's Master, the release of the latest Beige Book, and the Bank of Canada will be out with its latest monetary policy decision, where another 25 basis points hike to 5% is expected. After the consumer price data, agency MBS prices are better a quarter to three-eighths, the 10 years yielding 3.89 after closing yesterday at 3.98%, and the two years at 4.77%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Two lifelong buddies are out for their weekly golf game. One's black and one is white. Who <laughs> knows where this joke's going. They are always arguing that God is white while the other says that God is black. Lightning strikes them both dead while they're playing. They get to heaven and <laughs> I guess they're excited to find out about God. St. Peter greets them and takes them to meet God and they're still excited. The gate to God's chamber opens, and there God sits. God leans down and says, Hola, amigos, ¿qué pasó? <laughs> Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Simple Nexus, the homeownership platform that unites the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process into one seamless end-to-end solution that spans engagement, origination, closing, incentive compensation, and business intelligence. To learn more about Simple Nexus and Encino Company, visit simplenexus.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.